I met Anita Sleto a few times while she was living in a homeless tent camp near downtown Boise in 2015. I didn't meet her wife, Megan Sleto, until the day Boise police cleared out that camp. It was December 4, 2015. By sundown, the tents were empty and the Slettos were standing in Cooper Court, the alley they'd lived in for months, wondering where they were going to sleep. They'd been to a one-night shelter the city had set up for alley residents and left because they say they'd been told they would not be allowed to sleep side by side. Anita explained that was the reason they slept in a tent in the first place. I have severe medical problems, seizures, PTSD, a severe back nerve damage, severe anxiety, such so forth and so on. And she's not only my wife, but she's also my caregiver. She has to not only be in the same area as me, but in the same bed if I'm sleeping type situation, and it will not happen in any shelter. They, won't they will separate to... us, period, married or not. Standing there that night, listening to Anita list her medical problems, I was skeptical. It's not that I thought she was lying, but in an extreme situation like that, when a person is feeling desperate, I think anyone would tell their story in a way that would get maximum sympathy. I certainly would. So maybe I thought she was exaggerating just a bit. And that's what I thought until three months later, when I learned Anita had died. Yeah, I am. Megan. Megan Sleto? Yeah, that'd be me. One year to the day Cooper Court was cleared of its roughly 100 inhabitants, I saw Megan Sleto again. She had come back to the alley on the anniversary of the eviction to remember the place she and her wife called home. She points to the place where their tent used to be. Where the alley goes between the wall of the freeway and interfaith sanctuary homeless shelter, there's a mural that reads, Respect, Compassion, Dignity, Community. It was down where the word dignity is on the wall of Sanctuary's painting underneath that word. Sleto can list a dozen things that were terrible about living in the tent camp here, but she can't help missing it. That's mostly because it's where she met, married, and lived with her wife. But she also misses the belonging and the identity she felt. She says people in the alley respected her and her wife and came to them for help and advice. Everybody knew where to find us because we were what people called the famous lesbians at Cooper Court. We were the Cooper Court lesbians. They were the lesbian couple, but they weren't the only members of the LGBT community in this tent community. It would be surprising if they had been, because lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people experience homelessness in higher proportions than the rest of society. Much higher. And Boise is not an exception. I'm Adam Cotterell, and this is Some of the Parts, a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. There are more than 2,000 homeless people in Idaho, nearly 900 of them in the Boise area. You may have heard that 40% of homeless youth are LGBT. That number comes from the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. It does research on LGBT issues. In its most recent study, though, the Institute abandoned that 40% number, not because the researchers don't think it's accurate, but because it's not precise enough. They changed some of their methodology and also aren't doing a single number anymore, but one for each of the letters in LGBT and Q for questioning. In that study, they estimate that 20% of homeless youth identify as gay or lesbian. That's more than five times higher than in the general U.S. population. 
but we don't know if it's quite as high for homeless people beyond their mid-twenties. Megan Sleto is 30, and Anita had just celebrated her 41st birthday when she died. In the empty alley that used to seem more like a village, Megan explains why they chose to sleep outside Interfaith Sanctuary's wall instead of inside. They were going to separate us. I was going to be on one side of the women's dorm, and she'd be on the other, of the single lady's dorm. So they slept in a tent under the word dignity. Megan says in their tent they would have conversations long into the night. One of the things they talked most about was a dream of opening their own homeless shelter. We spent hours on end figuring out how our shelter was going to be different from all the ones down here. We kind of looked at how Sanctuary was running theirs, observed City Lights, observed you know how the men's mission is different. We'll take Sanctuary's concept, but we won't separate those that don't have kids. If you're married, whether you're gay, straight, bi, transgender, you can still be together in a room, in a bed. You know, because family's a family no matter what. Whether you've got kids or not. And we just built from there and just came up with a name, come up with rules, you know, what our missions would be. What was the name of your shelter going to be? It was gonna, it's gonna be, I still wanna try and do it. Um, home and pride with no judgment. Being separated at Interfaith Sanctuary was not because they were a lesbian couple. I met a straight married couple who also slept in the tent camp because they would have had to be a part in the shelter. Sanctuary is the only homeless shelter in Southwest Idaho where a married couple can have a private room together. But those are reserved for families with children. Sanctuary co-director Dan Alt says kids are top priority, period. And although we do feel that married couples should sleep together, it's just not really a reality for our shelter right now. We don't have the room for it. And he says, unlike a straight couple, a gay couple could sleep in beds just a few feet apart in the dorm area if there were beds available when they showed up. So if there were two beds right next to each other, yes, most definitely would. And we try not to just get people to move based on another person's need and disrupt that person. They've been sleeping in that bed. It's their bed for the last couple of days. The less disruption we can provide, it creates a healthier shelter environment. Megan Sleto says Sanctuary was more accepting than City of Light the women's shelter run by the Boise Rescue Mission. We'd go to City Lights to eat and ended up getting told we couldn't go there to eat anymore because we were supposedly holding hands in the mess hall. So you weren't allowed to hold hands? We weren't allowed to show any affection at City Lights. The Rescue Mission's director confirms they don't allow physical displays of affection in their shelters. After the Boise police broke up the tent camp in Cooper Court, the Sledos slept in a few different places. They couch surfed with friends a little bit. A few times they saved up enough money for a motel. Anita's birthday, Super Bowl Sunday, so they could watch the game and sleep in a bed. But Megan shows me where they spent a lot of nights. We walk a block from the alley, under the freeway connector, past the skate park, to the parking lot of a fire station with a row of porta potties. This one would be the primary one that we were in. It was the furthest from the skate park, and therefore the least used. We sat with the lid of the toilet in there, down, so the you know, closed toilet. But we would sit there and kind of huddle next to each other to keep warm every night. Just end up, you know, 
my head on her shoulder and her head on my head. Yes, our bodies were stiff by next morning. But they were together. Now, this seems to me both beautiful and romantic, but at the same time, just nuts. I mean, my wife and I love each other and rely on each other a lot. But if we had a choice between sleeping together in a porta potty on a Boise January or February night, or in separate beds, or even cots in a warm room separated by a bunch of strangers, I think she'd say, see you in the morning, honey. Somebody show me to my cot, please. Although the room full of strangers gives me some pause. Megan says it was more than that for Anita. She says her wife got so anxious in the crowded shelter that the cold seemed preferable. But Megan says being out there probably played a role in Anita's death. She ended up with pneumonia in October. Thought it was gone. Wasn't gone. March 7th last year, Anita was in bad shape. Megan says several people, including Megan herself, told Anita to go to the hospital. About 9 o'clock, in the middle of a seizure, she said, go ahead and make the call. The battalion chief for that night, we knew him, he knew us, and he goes, grab your stuff, we'll load it up in the truck, and I'll take you down to the hospital. At the hospital, Megan had to fight for a while to be allowed to be with her wife, though she doesn't know if that had anything to do with their being gay. Eventually, hospital staff let her in. As Megan describes the next few hours, it sounds like most hospital-based TV shows I've ever seen. There's people rushing around, alarms sounding, lines on screens going flat for frighteningly long intervals. At one point, a specialist said Anita's kidneys were failing and recommended dialysis. But by three in the morning, it looked like the end. And I'm watching them pound on her, pound on her, trying to get a pulse back, trying to get a pulse back. Doctors getting me all prepared if they have to make the, you know, do the call. That day they can't pull her back anymore. They finally make the call at 3.15 that morning on the 8th of March and said, she's gone. They let me stay with her in her room until the time that I was ready to go and leave from the ER. They get me a taxi voucher. I put all my stuff in the taxi, load it all up, come down here to tell everybody about 10 o'clock in the morning. Down here being the block where many homeless people spend a lot of time, near the shelters in the skate park. I didn't have any time to call anybody that night prior while this was all happening. So I had to come down here and everybody's asking me, where's my, you know, where's my wife? Where's my gorgeous wife? You know, where's Anita? Where is she? After Anita's death, Megan says she went into a six-month drug binge. They were both meth addicts. She says she doesn't remember much from that time, but eventually decided to get sober. When we spoke last December, she said she'd been clean for nearly three months. So maybe by now you're wondering what Megan looks like. Her hair is buzzed so short, I can't tell if it's blonde or brown or somewhere in between. She favors masculine clothes, work shirts and boots, jeans, a crowded keychain hanging from her belt. It's got her and Anita's wedding rings, a big metal cross, and a little silver vial. I always carry her with me. Yeah, this little vial here is a, a little bit of a urn, a little bitty one, with her in it. And then uh, the rest of hers in a candy jar at my friend's where I'm currently staying because they're clean and sober and they're wanting to make sure I stay clean and sober. It's been tough without her. But when we spoke again in March, just a few days before the anniversary of Anita's death, 
Megan said she'd started using again. So death doesn't care what a person's sexual orientation or gender identity is, but a lot of other people still do. According to the research from the Williams Institute and other organizations, one of the main reasons LGBT youth become homeless at such high rates is family rejection. That is getting kicked out of the home due to the stigma against a young person's sexual orientation or gender identity. Laura Durso directs LGBT research at the Center for American Progress. And unfortunately, that is a stark reality for many young people, is that they are thrown out of their homes or communities or other safe spaces and really need to find shelter and support in other ways. Megan Sleto says that did not happen with her. She says her parents didn't much care she was gay, something she and they suspected, at least by her early teens. She says it did worry her grandmother, who she lived with for much of her adolescence. Megan says her grandmother loved her and was good to her, but encouraged her to try to not be gay. If you ask Megan why she became homeless, she says it was simple. She lost her housing voucher and therefore her apartment. Just bad luck. But there are plenty of things in her history she could blame. Her own list of health problems, almost as long as her late wife's, a childhood of terrible abuse, lack of education and job skills beyond the minimum wage level, drugs, though maybe we shouldn't include that because she says she didn't start using meth until after she became homeless. When I started working on this story, I knew about the high rates of homelessness among LGBT people. But I assumed that those numbers would have gone down in recent years. I mean, come on, a lot has changed. Same-sex marriage is legal across the country. Transgender people are a lot more prominent in the media. But Soon Q. Choi, one of the researchers who wrote the most recent report on this for the Williams Institute, says the numbers don't show much change for homeless youth. From the 2012 report to the 2015 report, the results are not that different. Laura Durso with the Center for American Progress says there may be a curious reason why numbers for LGBT youth becoming homeless remains high, even while society as a whole becomes more accepting of them. Young people may be coming out to their families and to their communities where they may not have before because they can see the external supports that are available, they can see the advancement of rights. And so it's sort of this paradox of the greater acceptance in our society may lead people to come out more so than they did in the past, but then that coming out could trigger rejecting experiences and, and other problems. Durso says not only do LGBT youth become homeless in disproportionately large numbers, once they're out there, they're at greater risk. When young people are on the streets, if they're LGBT, they are more likely to be mistreated and abused on the streets. She says many of them turn to what's called crimes of survival, petty theft, selling drugs, prostitution. She says transgender people are at the greatest risk. According to the Williams Institute, about 4% of homeless youth identify as trans. That may seem like a small number, but it's almost seven times higher than the general population. Me, I've been this way my whole life. 
I felt feminine. I knew I liked wearing girl clothes and dressing up like a girl better than I did being a dude. And I've been doing it for years since I was a little kid. Freya sometimes talks about herself as a gay man and sometimes as a trans woman. But she says she prefers to be called she and to use the name Freya, even though many of her friends still call her by her birth name, Mark Walker. When they asked me, Mark, what are you going to make up your mind about what you're going to be? I said, I don't know. I said, if I want to be a lady, I'm going to be a lady. If I want to be Mark, I'm going to be Mark. If I want to wear a dress, I'm going to wear a dress. If I want to wear jeans, I'm going to wear jeans. And if I want to keep a beard on when I put my hair in and do my makeup and look what I, I used to back in the day without facial hair, then I'm going to do it being a beard lady. I'm me. That's all I am. And I'm going to keep being me till the day I die. Freya is tall, over six foot, and skinny. She's smoking behind Corpus Christi House, Boise's homeless day shelter. This was a warm day last fall. She's wearing flip-flops, though she wears them year-round. She has a big, colorful purse, one of her most treasured possessions. But at first, I thought she was in men's clothes. After we talked for a while, I noticed that her sweatpants and t-shirt would definitely have come from the women's section of a store. Though they're so faded, I'm guessing she did not get them from a store. How she looks is very important to Freya, and so she's feeling particularly self-conscious about her beard. Meth is an awful, terrible drug, and it will make your face look like a worm's been eating holes in it. And I used to think that that was just because people used to pick their face and pick their face. And I don't pick my face. And last time I shaved my beard, all I saw were little crater marks on my face, and I don't like what my face looks like no more. I keep my beard to cover it up so you can't see it. Like Megan Sleto, Freya says who she is did not have anything to do with becoming homeless. She says her parents didn't seem to mind that she was different. She does have a lot of anger towards them, but it's because they couldn't get their lives together and give her a good childhood. She says she's been homeless off and on as long as she can remember. Freya grew up in Texas. When she was 17, she was sent to Boise to stay with an aunt because her parents had become homeless again. She didn't get along with her aunt, so as soon as she turned 18, she left. That was five years ago. Freya says it wasn't long after she left her aunt's house that she started working as a prostitute. I was barely freshly homeless, and like, I'm in a new place. I found somebody who, who showed me how to do that here, and I realized I could get things that I wanted, and I was okay with it. People sit there and, um say that this demeaning and degrading and I've actually had some people I've actually met who've done that and they said that it was so hard for them and it was this this and that and I loved it and I, I'm not gonna lie about that I won't never be ashamed of what I've done you can think I'm degrading myself I'm, I'm wrong whatever Freya's talk about her feelings on prostitution seems to me at least partly bravado. I think she's a lot more conflicted than she lets on, especially since she says she started using meth immediately after beginning prostitution. In 2015, the annual one-night count of homeless people sponsored by the federal government started including transgender in the results alongside male and female. In 2015 and 2016, the count showed three homeless trans people in Boise. 
Well, from talking with homeless people and service providers, I'd guess it's a little higher than that. One of the big challenges faced by homeless trans people is just getting shelter, according to Laura Durso with the Center for American Progress. We did a study of access to emergency shelters for adult transgender women, and we tested 100 shelters in four different states. We really just wanted to see, would these women be able to, one, access a shelter, and two, be housed appropriately with other women. And unfortunately, we found that only 30% of the time did these shelters appropriately house our callers with other women. The rest of the time, they either weren't quite sure of the policy, denied them shelter outright, or said that they would be housed with men. A few months ago, the National Center for Transgender Equality released results of a survey of nearly 30,000 trans Americans, which the center claims is the largest survey of trans people ever conducted. Nearly a third of respondents said they had been homeless at some point in their lives. Of those who had stayed in a homeless shelter in the past year, 70% reported they'd been mistreated because of their gender identity. That included being harassed, assaulted, or kicked out of the shelter. Freya has lived on and off at Interfaith Sanctuary, where she says none of that ever happened. Sanctuary is the only place that I've ever been to that I felt safe and stuff to go to, and I used to sleep on the female side of the sanctuary. She was sleeping on the sidewalk last fall because Sanctuary had instituted some new rules she didn't like, and there were some new staff members she wasn't fond of either. But when we spoke again last winter, she said she was back in the shelter. Interfaith Sanctuary's Dan Alt says their policy is to accept people as they are. In our intake process, we ask whether they are male, female, LGBTQ, transgender, and then if they answer yes to that question, we ask them, are they male to female or female to male? And we are happy to place them however they present themselves. We don't have any requirements on bathroom use, but we do have a separate bathroom for them to shower and use as they wish. If they want to, we respect their decision and we just want to allow them every opportunity and reduce the barriers of accepting shelter. So at Sanctuary, trans people can sleep in whichever dorm they want. Alt says that sometimes does not sit well with other guests. The homeless community, they're oftentimes ridiculed and, and not accepted, but, you know, they also have their biases. If a guest objects to having a transgender man or woman in the dorm, Alt has a little talk with that person. I will take them aside, away from uh, the rest of the guests, and I will have the conversation with them that if somebody was disrespecting them, that I would stick up for them. And we need to identify a way that this person could stay because they wouldn't want me to send them to the street either. I think that we could both agree to that. It's just communicating to them what the needs of the shelter are, the fact that we're here to respect all human beings, and somehow find a way for us all to stay in the shelter each night. But even with more than 160 guests a night, Sanctuary is small compared to the Boise Rescue Mission, which has two shelters in Nampa and two in Boise, City of Light for women and the River of Life for men. That's the biggest shelter in the state. Freya says she's heard of other trans women who have stayed at City of Light, but doesn't think she'd be welcome there because she doesn't exactly look like a woman. She says she could maybe stay at River of Life, depending on how she was dressed. I can go there and be gay, and I can wear female clothes somewhat. But the mission, if I want to be Freya, I cannot stay at the mission. I cannot be Freya and stay there. Because Freya is a woman. A lot of homeless people who don't sleep at Boise Rescue Mission shelters eat there. 
Freya says during a meal at River of Life once, she got kicked out for getting into a verbal altercation. That seemed a fairly reasonable response to her, but not what happened next. And I went back the next day and they told me I was hard barred and I couldn't even eat there. But I waited a few months and I started going back. You think you were kicked out? I know I was kicked out for wearing girl clothes. There was no thinking about it. From her description of the incident, it's not at all clear to me that her suspension, for lack of a better word, from the mission, was because of her clothes. It seems plausible that the argument that got her kicked out was bigger than she thought. And Freya readily admits that her volatility gets her in trouble all the time. I'm not going to let nobody hold me back and nobody tell me what I can and cannot do. That's the problem I have. I have a problem with authority figures. That's another reason why I can't stay at these shelters. That's the reason why I get kicked out of here all the time. Kicked out of? I've gotten kicked out of Corpus before a couple times. She says she has some mental health issues. Bipolar, schizophrenia, PTSD. The list goes on from there. I'm a Heinz 57 rolled in crazy. The rescue mission's policies on transgender guests aren't as straightforward as sanctuaries. Reverend Bill Roscoe is the head of the Boise Rescue Mission. Roscoe says with trans people who look like the gender they identify as, it's usually not a problem putting them in the shelter where they would be the most comfortable. But he says there are safety issues for people who are in the process of transition. Needless to say, throughout society there are people with biases, and in the homeless population that's true too. And number one, we don't tolerate any of that kind of attitude being expressed, whether it be race or religion or sexual orientation. But we have to be concerned about the comfort and safety of all of our guests. And so we do that by looking at each individual in these extraordinary situations and deciding with them, here's the best way to serve you. It's a very case-by-case sort of process that we go through. But what we can do is, is talk with the, with the person and decide what's the best situation for that person. Are they safer at City Light? Are they safer at one of the men's shelters? Are they safer and better accommodated with a motel voucher for a few nights? So, you know, we just take it one day at a time, one case at a time with people and work through those issues with them. Roscoe says the mission has a separate bathroom trans guests can use, and whether its use is optional, encouraged, or mandatory is also on a case-by-case basis. The Boise Rescue Mission is a religious organization, and Roscoe himself is very conservative. But he says that doesn't mean the mission is not committed to serving LGBT people experiencing homelessness. I know that there are some Christians, well, let's not say Christian. There are some people of faith from a variety of different religious backgrounds who don't want to accept people because of their sexual orientation or because of their physical process of change, transgender. We don't fall into that category. The board and the staff and myself at this rescue mission, we want to serve everyone who comes through our door. The Bible says that God loves everyone, that everyone is created in his image. And because of that, we're valuable, we have worth, and should be treated with respect and dignity. And so that's our baseline. Let's treat everyone with respect and protect their dignity. So whether I have a guy showing up who's got swastikas tattooed on his neck or another guy who shows up with black power tattooed on his arm or whether the person shows up and is a transgender person, whatever their issue might be, as offensive or as uh, threatening as that might be to some people, to us at the rescue mission, that's every day. 
you know, we, we serve people who are on the fringe and on the edge of the broad community. The mission's policies may not be everything that an LGBT advocate would want, but I think that Roscoe is sincere in his desire to serve LGBT homeless people well and with dignity. Here's a couple of things to back up that hunch. There were some rules set down by the Obama administration about how homeless shelters should serve transgender people. Those were widely criticized by social conservatives, including the head of the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. The Boise Rescue Mission is a member of that. Roscoe didn't have to follow those rules since he doesn't take federal money. But looking at those rules and comparing them to Roscoe's description of how they do things, I think he'd actually be in compliance. Interfaith Sanctuary doesn't take federal money either, but its policies for trans guests would definitely comply with those rules. And research from the Williams Institute suggests that specific training for homeless service providers on interacting with LGBT clients can be helpful in making sure their needs are met. Roscoe says he and his staff have received that kind of training from the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. Though, again, that organization doesn't always see eye-to-eye with LGBT advocates. Dan Alt says no one at Sanctuary has had any specific training on serving LGBT guests. Both Roscoe and Alt say that some homeless people are prejudiced against gays, lesbians, bisexual, or transgender people. Megan Sledo and Freya both say they've seen some of that, but both also say they think there is less anti-LGBT sentiment in the homeless community than there is in the general population, and that most other homeless people accept them. But I also wanted to know how they relate to the other community they belong to, the larger LGBT community. For Freya, it's, um, complicated. I don't even like other gay people. I'm going to be honest and real. I may be gay, but I'm one of the most homophobic gay people you will ever meet. And she'll go on some of the most bitter anti-gay and anti-trans tirades you're likely to hear outside a Westboro Baptist church service. I wonder if some of her animus is because much of her interaction with the LGBT community has happened while working as a prostitute. For Megan Sleto, her involvement in the gay community is one of the things she's most proud of. I've got a title with the Imperial Sovereign Gem Court of Idaho. That's a nonprofit that raises money for a variety of causes by putting on drag shows. Megan runs the spotlight for the shows and even performs sometimes. But I'm the only lesbian that will dress drag king and wear all the guy stuff. There's a lot of them that are drag queens. Megan practically beams when she talks about helping to raise money for poor women to get mammograms, for Alpha, an Idaho organization that serves people with HIV and AIDS, and especially for the WCA, which helped her when she was young. But she says most of her friends in the Imperial Sovereign Gem Court didn't know she was homeless until they saw her on the news during the coverage of the tent camp in Cooper Court. She says there's not that much interaction between LGBT homeless in Boise and the larger LGBT community. They're not aware of how many people are out here. I'm more active within the community than some of the others that are homeless and gay. There are a number of LGBT organizations in Boise, 
and I looked for one that does any type of outreach to LGBT homeless people. I couldn't find one, with the possible exception of Alpha, which has done some work with homeless people with AIDS. Megan says she doesn't expect any LGBT organizations to work with the homeless. She says they all have their own valuable missions. Laura Durso with the Center for American Progress says that for national organizations, LGBT homelessness has started to become a major priority. But at the state and local level, organizations are often focused elsewhere. Resources are, are thin. In an era when the LGBT movement sees attacks from all sides, there were over 200 bills introduced in state legislatures across the country in 2016. Bills, she says, meant to limit LGBT rights. Numbers have not gone down for LGBT people becoming homeless. But are they safer on the street than they used to be? Are they getting help? Is life getting better overall? I asked that to Soon Q Choi, who researches LGBT youth homelessness for the Williams Institute. Choi is a scientist, and she talks like one. There's almost nothing she will say about her own work that doesn't come with a caveat or two. We can't necessarily draw X conclusion because of Y and Z limitations on the methodology, stuff like that. But I pressed her to stop being a scientist for just a minute and give me her opinion. Are things getting better? I don't know if I could say things got better. I don't really have a sense of whether the experiences are improving. But what I did notice is that there seems to be a push to really understand the lived experiences of youth experiencing homelessness. So I think in that sense, I could say I feel that there are more efforts that are moving in the right direction. Freya says, in Boise at least, maybe things are getting better for LGBT homeless people. A lot of people think that Boise is a po-punk backwards town, but Boise is becoming a lot more understanding. It really is. It's become a lot more understanding since I've been down here. You've been listening to Some of the Parts, a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Adam Cotterell. I write it and produce it. Paul Stribling oversees it. Our theme song is by Up Is The Down Is The. You know, when I first told Reverend Bill Roscoe I was doing a podcast, he said he was comfortable with that. As offensive or as threatening as that might be to some people, to us at the Rescue Mission, that's every day. This is Some of the Parts.